0: Good morning everybody again good to see you guys here and i just want to reiterate what dylan said man we had so much fun at this trick-or-treat night it was it was incredible it really was so neat to see us use this building again for what we built it for and i if you see kim nelson i want you to encourage her please and just say great job because she put hours and hours and hours into this thing because it was excellent. It was done with excellent. 50 to 60 volunteers uh, from our church participated in this. Five to 600 people from our neighborhood came to this. And so it was awesome. It was so fun. And, uh, boy, I I just look forward to doing more of this stuff in the future as we build bridges with our neighbors and let them know that God loves them. Amen? Amen. This week I read an inspiring story about the power of prayer in the history of our nation. And I want to read it to you. It's short. In the 1850s, the United States was in a weak spiritual state when, among other things, people were preoccupied with concern for material things. Sounds familiar, right? Uh, In 1857, a quiet 46-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lanfier, felt led to start a noontime weekly prayer meeting in New York City in which business people could meet for prayer and anyone could attend for a few minutes or for the entire hour. On the first day, Lanfier prayed by himself for half an hour, but by the end of the hour, six men from at least four different denominations had joined him. 20 came the next week, and 40 the week after that. Soon they decided to meet daily, and the group swelled to over 100. And pastors who came started morning prayer meetings in their own churches. Soon similar meetings were being held all over America. Within six months in America, there were more than 10,000 people meeting daily in New York City alone. This was the start of what we now call the third great awakening in North American Christianity. And it's estimated that within two years, two million people came to Christ out of a population of 30 million in America. That's incredible. Over the past 2,000 years, the greatest Christian movements on earth have always started when individual Christians and churches devoted themselves to prayer, always. That's the common thread. Now the power of God uh, to create large-scale spiritual awakenings is by no means limited to our prayers. But if we want to see God transform our lives and our families and our communities and our churches and our nation, then we should keep asking God to make this happen. Spiritual revival happens always in God's timing, in God's places that he chooses Because just like the wind, the Holy Spirit blows whenever and wherever He wants. We cannot control God. We cannot force Him to revive our cold hearts. We cannot force Him to bring dead souls to life. However, when you look at history, you see that Christian revival is almost always preceded and accompanied by the persistent prayers of Christians. And so it's no surprise that before Christianity spread like wildfire throughout um, the Roman Empire, from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the empire, the first followers of Jesus came together and devoted themselves to prayer. And that's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter one, verses twelve to twenty-six. The first chapter of Acts shows us how Jesus prepared his apostles to take the good news of his salvation to the ends of the earth. In verses 1 to 5, we saw that after his resurrection, Jesus spent time with the apostles, teaching them this clear message that any and every human being can be forgiven by God for his or her sins that he or she can have eternal friendship and life with God by trusting in Jesus, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death for them on the cross for their sin, and in his resurrection from the dead. And then in verses 6 to 8, we read that Jesus promised to send God's Holy Spirit to the apostles to empower them to effectively take this message to all the peoples, starting in Jerusalem and moving outwards to the ends of the earth. In verses 9 to 11, we read that Jesus then returned to heaven by ascending physically into the sky and then up into heaven itself, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And we spent two weeks talking about why it is good news that Jesus is exalted in heaven right now. As our advocate, as our defender, as our all-powerful friend that we just sing about who feels compassion for us and who has promised to give us grace and mercy to strengthen us in our time of need. And now in verses 12 to 26, we're gonna read about how the apostles dedicated themselves to obeying God and to prayer as they waited for God's Holy Spirit to come to them. So if you've got your Bible with you, please open to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And before we read that, let me pray for us. Let's ask him to help us. Dear Lord, we call on you right now and ask for your help as we open your word. Jesus in heaven, we believe that you are a God, that you, that you are God, that you are in control of everything that, that happens in our lives, that happens in this universe that you created. We believe, Jesus, that you love us. We believe that you're exalted in heaven right now as our gracious and merciful advocate. So we ask that you would please use your Holy Spirit to teach our minds and our hearts with your word now. Please minister to us in our time of need. Please convict us, please encourage us. Please transform us into your image. And please protect us now from Satan and his demons. Please protect us from our own flesh. Please protect us from the temptations of the world around us. Please do your will with our lives for your glory and for our joy we pray this in the name of the father and of the son jesus and of the holy spirit amen okay Hey, i was just thinking i do want to mention this if you use your phone to read the bible that's great but i would say this our phones i realize, can really be a temptation to us at this time so if it is gonna be a distraction for you during the sermon, if I don't want you to read the passage and then go to Facebook, okay? I want you to read the passage and stay in the passage, okay? Otherwise, bring a hard copy of the Bible because I'm realized too, man, I sowed by default can get lost on my phone and I don't want that to happen now in our time together. Let's start by um, reading Acts uh, verse uh, 12 to 14. Of chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So let's stop there for now. Verse 12 says that the 11 apostles returned into the city of Jerusalem, which is about a three-quarter mile walk from the Mount of Olives. Now I wanted to ask, I'm curious, has anybody in here actually been to Jerusalem and made that walk to the Mount of Olives? Raise your hand if you have. I'm just curious. Some of you have. That's awesome. Man, I want to talk to you more about that. That's great. Um, It's important for us to remember these are real places. Uh, This is not a fairy tale. This is history. Verse 13 says that when the apostles had entered the city they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And the writer Luke here says that the apostles went up to the upper room. He uses what's called a definite article, the upper room, which suggests that this upper room was a location that most of the first Christians probably were familiar with. It's very possible it was the same upper room in which Jesus ate his last supper with his apostles, And also where he appeared to the apostles in his resurrected body on two different occasions. Now, if you were an ancient citizen in Jerusalem and you could afford a house with an upper room, then this room was in many ways the best room in the house. It It was above the busy street below. So you could have some privacy. You could be away from the noise that was on the ground level, and uh, it was a place in the upper room where it wasn't possible for people to look in as they walked by and to see what you were doing. Remember that these apostles were not from Jerusalem. They'd been there many times for festivals, but this wasn't their hometown. The apostles were from Galilee, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. And the apostles were staying in this upper room in Jerusalem because they were doing what Jesus told them to do. They were staying in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews where they would start their mission. And they were going to wait until the Holy Spirit descended upon them with power. And verse 13 says that these were the apostles who were there. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Did you know there were two Judases in the the apostles? Now the one apostle not listed here is Judas Iscariot because he killed himself after he betrayed Jesus. So there were 11 here. And for the most part, these 11 men were totally average, run-of-the-mill guys whom Jesus had called by name at the start of his public ministry on earth to follow him. And these men had followed Jesus around on earth for three years as he preached and taught about the kingdom of God and as he performed signs and wonders to show them that he was God and as he went up to the cross to suffer as the punishment for sin. And these 11 men we we know were far from perfect as evidenced by their words and actions that we read in the gospel. However, it's undeniable that each and every one of these 11 men had been profoundly changed after seeing Jesus rise from the dead. They were no longer timid about their faith in Jesus. They were now ready to be bold witnesses for him. And they did not gather now in the upper room to hide in fear from the authorities like they had earlier. After seeing Jesus die and rise from the dead and then ascend into heaven, these apostles are now gathered in the upper room joyfully, we read from Luke's account, to wait, just like Jesus told them to, and to pray to God in heaven. And according to verse 14, the apostles were joined in the upper room by maybe a dozen other people. We read that they were joined by the women, and this could be referring to their wives, but... It probably is talking specifically about the band of women who faithfully followed Jesus around on earth and cared for his needs, as well as the needs of the apostles as they traveled around the countryside. Verse 14 says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was with them. What a ride Mary had been on. Think about that. What a ride. She had raised Jesus from the time he was just a baby, um, through his childhood, through his teenage years. We know that she was even at the foot of the cross when she watched her son be crucified to death. And the gospel writers don't specifically say whether Mary saw Jesus after he'd risen from the dead, but it's certainly possible since he appeared to hundreds of his followers. And now Mary is in this upper room in Jerusalem. It says she's accompanied by Jesus' brothers. So remember that Jesus, uh, during his ministry, Jesus' siblings did not really submit to him as God. Uh, But apparently, after his resurrection, they too had been radically changed, okay? They were now considered part of this close-knit group of of Jesus' followers and they believed that their brother Jesus was God. And the Gospels mentioned Jesus' brothers in several places, and their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, another Judas. And these were all Jesus' younger brothers, because Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus. Now, it's worth briefly noting here that uh, the Roman Catholic church disagrees with most protestants about this verse Uh, we protestants would say that since the bible says jesus had actual blood brothers and that means that mary and joseph consummated their marriage after jesus's birth and had at least four sons together and they also had some unnamed daughters who are mentioned in the gospels the roman catholic catechism however teaches a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of mary which does not allow Catholics to believe that Mary ever consummated her marriage with Joseph. And this teaching says that Jesus' mother Mary has always been, forever will be a virgin. And this was a doctrine that gained a lot of strength about 200 years after the Bible was written, but it was not taught by the apostles. And for Catholics, this doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is very important Because they believe that Mary is a co-mediator with Jesus between God and man. And that not only is she perpetually a virgin, but also she was immaculately conceived, just like Jesus was, without sin. And that she also lived a perfect life, just like Jesus. None of this is in the Bible. So the underlying, this goes along with, the reason I'm bringing this up is it goes along with what we're teaching in Sunday school about the five solos of the Reformation. The underlying reason why Protestants and Roman Catholics' beliefs are very different is because we believe different things about the Bible. The Roman Catholics believe that the authority of the Pope and of church tradition is equally as authoritative as the Bible, which allows Catholic leaders to add teachings not in the Bible. As Protestants, however, we believe that God's word alone is the sole authority of truth and Christian doctrine. We hold strongly to Jesus' prayer for the disciples in John 17, 17, where he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And because we trust the sole authority of God's word, we believe that Mary is not a co-mediator with Jesus, Rather, we affirm 1 Timothy 2, five to six, where the Holy Spirit guided the apostle Paul to write, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Thus, we have no problem affirming that in the upper room in Jerusalem when this happened, um, there was gathered Jesus' remaining 11 apostles with Jesus' women followers and Mary the mother of Jesus and Jesus' actual brothers. Now verse 14 says that uh, this worshipful group of early Christ followers were, quote, with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. And so the phrase with one accord means that they were all in agreement that prayer is what they should be doing. Okay. With one accord, they were united in their conviction to pray. And as this united body, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Okay. So they, they didn't come together to hang out at the upper room, you know, to play ping pong and Xbox. It's not why they were there. They weren't just going to burn time while they waited for the Holy Spirit to come. The early church came together to spend a lot of time praying together. And they prayed with persistence. And think about this, this is an incredible scene. Jesus gave the apostles the great commission to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. But then he said, before you move on that, I want you to wait. I want you to wait in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit to you at some time in the relatively near future. Uh, While they waited, they didn't just sit around a table in the upper room and hypothesize about when the Holy Spirit might come. They didn't sit around worrying or wasting time together. They prayed together. And while we don't know specifically what they prayed about, there's good reason to think they were praying that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit soon. Well, why would you pray for something that you're certain is eventually gonna happen because Jesus promised it would happen? Well, because they were doing what Jesus taught them to do, to draw near to his throne of grace through faith and to ask for grace and mercy in their time of need. They, they might have been praying the prayer that he had taught them to pray, the, pray, the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer which includes the part that says, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They were praying for God's will to happen in their lives. And he had told them that his will was to send the Holy Spirit to them. So again, God's power and his will is not limited to what we ask him to do in our prayers. But the Bible clearly teaches that God often chooses to work in response to the prayers of his people. Okay. You know, these, these first followers of Jesus loved Jesus, they trusted Jesus, but this was still an uncertain time for them. I'm sure these first Christians had all sorts of questions about how this mission would turn out. But even though Jesus didn't tell them all the details, he promised them I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And he promised them that his will would be done through them when the Holy Spirit came. It is a blessed thing to really believe that God's will will be done in your life. I don't know what all is going on in all of your lives right now, But Jesus wants you to know and he wants me to know that he's in control of our lives. And Jesus wants us to follow his example here. He wants you and me to pray to him. He wants us to draw near to him through faith and to ask him for grace and mercy and strength in our time of need. And Jesus wants us as a church to be united with one mind and to devote ourselves to prayer. I want to show you our church purpose statement for a second. It says, Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. And as I was thinking about that this week, gospel-centered worship and community are two of the four purposes of our church and a crucial part of worshiping God and of being in community together is praying together. And also a crucial part of serving the Lord and multiplying disciples is praying together. And we can always improve in this area. I don't know how much time we're spending in our community groups praying for one another and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven But you and I need to do this in that time together, okay? I'm telling you to make that a priority. We must not allow prayer to be an afterthought to our time together. One of the convictions I had when I came back from my sabbatical is that I personally need to spend more time in prayer. I need to spend more time praying for this church. And I have carved out time now in my schedule where I'm actually just saying, this is when this happens intentionally, and then throughout the day, I'm gonna pray also. But as the lead elder here, this is a core part of my responsibility to be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word, according to Acts 6. And I told the elders that are meeting recently, I wanna spend more time in prayer when we're together. And that means we're probably not gonna be able to talk to every, about everything on our to-do lists. But this is what I really believe, that if we pray, and if we submit all our issues to God, then he will supernaturally work out many things for us. And I hope that if you're involved in a ministry at Cedar Home, if you're a ministry leader, then together you will spend time praying. Prayer is important. This is why the youth staff prays together before youth group every Thursday night. This is why the children's ministry team prays every Sunday morning before the kids come over to junior church. This is why Dylan prays with the worship team twice on Sundays before leading our services. This is why the staff and elders and deacons pray together every Sunday morning. Dylan and I have been talking about this recently, about the role of prayer in our church services and in our church at large. And and in addition to the prayers that we sing in our service um, through our music, And in addition to the prayers of our hearts as we worship Jesus uh, through preaching and through communion, we normally include three to four prayers in every church service. But in addition to this, we really wanna get the whole church together for more devoted times of worship and prayer. And we're thinking about doing this in January, so I want you to mark that on your calendar when we announce that, okay? But what we see from verse 14 is that even though Jesus' apostles don't always do things right, just like you and me, they are right on here as they pray to God and ask him to help them and to guide them. Because of the finished gospel work of Jesus, we Christians can be confident that our prayers are powerful and effective Because it is through faith in Jesus that we're united to him. We are united to God. We are not God, but we are united to him through faith. And our prayers to God are powerful because Jesus died because he rose again to bring us close to our triune God, the Father, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And if you've never trusted Jesus to forgive your sins and to bring you into this friendship with him, you you need to turn to him and be saved. That's what he says. Turn from your sin and turn to God. You were created for the glory of God. And he loves you. And you are made to know him personally and to enjoy friendship with him forever. And he is with you all the time. And when you belong to God in Jesus Christ, you can confidently pray to God because Jesus urges you, come to me in prayer, and I will give you grace and mercy in your time of need. Is that awesome? Wow. Okay, let's move on now and read Acts 1 15 to 20. <clears throat> in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, uchldumma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter stands up among the Christians here, and he shows himself to be one of the key leaders of the early Christian church. Remember that after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, and he forgave Peter for denying him three times, and Jesus restored Peter, both as a Christian man and as a key Christian leader in the early church. And and now we're going to see in Acts that Peter is a changed man in many ways. He's full of zeal for Jesus. He's courageously advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. verse 15 says that there was a group of about 120 Christians together in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up among them and he says, just as the Holy Spirit is going to descend on us and he's going to give us the words we need to share the gospel with the world, so also this same Holy Spirit has been speaking to God's people for thousands of years. And the Holy Spirit spoke through King David as he wrote down... God's Word in the Psalms. And then Peter shows this group where the Psalms prophesied about Judas Iscariot, many, many centuries before Judas Iscariot ever existed. Peter says in verse 17 that Judas acted as the guide for that angry mob that arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. And before that event, Judas Iscariot was was called by Jesus to be one of the 12 apostles, And Judas had lived with them for three years. He'd enjoyed all the rights and privileges of being one of the apostles. But after Judas went behind Jesus' back to the chiefs and the priests and led them to Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Judas felt enormous guilt about it. And in fact, he went back to the chief priests and he threw that bag of money right, right at him. And with that money, the priest purchased a field, probably Judas's name, and that field was called the field of blood, probably because it was purchased with blood money. The blood money that Judas received to betray Jesus. And Peter says that Judas hung himself there on that property where his body likely decomposed and burst open when he fell off the tree. And this is a grotesque description for sure, but Luke includes it here because it's a historical event that he wants us to know. If you've ever come across a dead animal carcass in the mountains or the woods, you know this is exactly what happens if those bodies are not buried. And then Peter goes on to share that Judas' betrayal of Jesus was not a surprise to God. In fact, God was using Judas and Satan in Judas to fulfill his plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And God spoke through David in Psalm 69:35, prophesying that this would happen, that Judas' office as an apostolic betrayer should become desolate. And from that point, no other apostle would betray Jesus. It's not in the Bible, but according to early church tradition, all the apostles were eventually martyred for their faith in Jesus. And then also Peter points to Psalm 109 verse eight to explain that the apostles now needed to choose someone to replace Judas Iscariot so that they would have 12 apostles. Peter says this in Acts 1:21 to 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us, during, us uh, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So here, Peter lays out some of the key requirements necessary to be an apostle. And this word apostle is all over the New Testament, so this is the perfect time to answer the question, what is an apostle? And how were the apostles different from the disciples? Well, a disciple is simply a term used to describe any follower of Jesus. It's not an office in the church. It's not an official position. A disciple of Jesus is simply a follower of Jesus. So if you are here today, you're trusting in Jesus for eternal life, and you are uh, seeking to follow him with your life, then you are a disciple of Jesus. And at this point in Acts, there were hundreds of disciples of Jesus but there were only 11 apostles. And now, uh, when, when the Bible uses this word apostle, some, uh, it's always referring to somebody who is sent out. That's what it means. Sometimes someone is sent out by the church on mission for Jesus. And even today, they, we call them, they're an apostle in a sense because we're, we're sending them out. But today's passage is describing something more than that. This passage is, is describing the office of apostle which was an office held by the core leaders of the early church. And we see in verses 21 to 22 in other places in the Gospels, three primary criteria required to be an apostle. First, you had to be a man who had accompanied Jesus during all of his public ministry from the time of John the Baptist until the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Second, you had to have witnessed Jesus in his resurrection body so that you could be a witness of Jesus's resurrection to the world. And third, you had to be chosen by Jesus. The original 12 apostles were called and handpicked by Jesus. So we do not have an office of apostle in the church today because everybody who was picked by Jesus, everybody who was accompanied Jesus during his ministry and who witnessed to the world about his resurrection They're in heaven right now with Jesus, okay? The New Testament says that there were a few other men who were later considered apostles, like the Apostle Paul, and their writings are just as equally considered God's word, but they were not considered one of the 12 apostles. One reason why it's important to know the criteria for being an apostle is because all of the New Testament books were written either by one of the apostles or by one of the close friends of the apostles. So therefore, no more books can be added to the New Testament because all of the apostles and their close friends are now in heaven with Jesus. The canon is closed, the Bible is closed. And another important question we gotta answer is this, why was it important to fill Judas's office? Why was it important that there be 12 apostles at that point in time in history? <clears throat> when Jesus tw- chose these 12 men to be his apostles, he specifically chose 12 in order to be a witness to Israel. Okay? In order to be a witness to Israel's 12 tribes and to the world that these men were the leaders of the true people of God. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel that in the new world that God will form when Jesus returns, these 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Tony Merida writes the 12 fold witness was required if early Jewish Christianity was to represent itself to the Jewish nation as the culmination of Israel's hope and the true people of Israel's Messiah. Now let's keep reading in Acts 1, 23 to 26. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So after sifting through the hundreds of disciples there, the apostles proposed two men to be the 12th apostle WHO BOTH FULFILLED, uh, AND BOTH OF THESE TWO MEN FULFILLED THE, the REQUIRED CRITERIA FOR APOSTLESHIP, OKAY? ONE MAN WAS NAMED JOSEPH, uh, THAT WAS HIS FIRST NAME, AND HIS LAST NAME WAS BARSABBAS, WHICH I THINK was, MEANS BORN ON THE SABBATH. AND HE ALSO HAD A Gentile NAME, WHICH WAS JUSTICE. IT'S A LATIN NAME. IT WAS, it was COMMON FOR JEWS AT THAT TIME TO HAVE MULTIPLE NAMES BECAUSE THEY WERE OCCUPIED BY THE ROMANS. And the other man they proposed was this guy named Matthias. Verse 24 says that before picking one of these men, the apostles prayed together again. So again, we see the vital role of prayer in the church. The apostles offer these two men to God, and they say, Lord, you know these two men, you know their hearts, and you know which one should be the 12th apostle, Please show us whom you have chosen to take Judas's place. And I love that they ask God to show them whom God has already chosen to be the 12th Apostle. They don't ask him to help them pick this guy. They don't ask God to pick that guy now. Instead, they're acknowledging Jesus is sovereign. He has known from eternity past who this 12th Apostle is. They simply ask God to now identify him. And so they cast lots, which is somewhat similar to rolling dice. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he became the 12th apostle of the early church. Now, casting lots was not an unusual way for God's people to determine God's will before the coming of the Holy Spirit. We read in several places in the Old Testament where leaders cast lots to determine God's will. And since Jesus was no longer with the apostles in the flesh and the Holy Spirit had not yet come to them, the apostles cast lots to identify who should take Judas' place. And keep in mind, this wasn't a blind roll of the dice, okay? The apostles had already used strict criteria to filter this group down to two equally qualified men. And then they prayed and they prayed to God and asked him to show them what to do. And then third, they rolled the dice and identified Matthias as the 12th apostle. Since we have the Holy Spirit with us and in us today, and since we have the full canon of God's word available to us, all of scripture, we no longer need to cast lots to determine God's will. Nowhere does the New Testament suggest that we spirit-filled Christians should make decisions using lots or dice. This passage, is descriptive of what the apostles did at that time in redemptive history. This passage is not prescribing what we should do today to identify church leaders, okay? However, the New Testament is explicitly clear that as a church, we should do the two other things that the apostles did here. As we select leaders of our church family every year, We must use the criteria given to us in 1 Timothy and Titus and elsewhere. And if elder and deacon candidates do not currently match that criteria, they should not be considered. And the second way we should follow the apostles' example is by praying together as a church family that God would put the right leaders in place at Cedar Home. And then we need to keep praying for the leaders of the church, for their spiritual protection and for humility and for their holiness. And likewise, our leaders must pray for you as well. So in a very practical way, I want to ask you, church, to join the leadership as we pray that God would raise up more elders and deacons and leaders that he has chosen to be in leadership at Cedar Home. Please ask God to give us his wisdom as the elders and deacons have been given the task of identifying potential elders and deacons using the biblical criteria, using prayer. And even though we have candidates fill out questionnaires, we meet with them, we ask them about their beliefs, about their lifestyle, we still need your help. And so when we bring potential candidates to you, my prayer is that we can do that this year. We need you to participate. In the process because ultimately you the church members choose the leaders of the church by vote and so the elders will likely present some potential candidates to you publicly and let them share about themselves a bit and if you don't know them very well you'll be free to ask them some questions and then after praying together we as a church will vote and select the leaders we believe God has chosen to lead our church here at Cedar Home at this time in history. Does that make sense? We will use scripture as our guide, we will pray together, and we will not cast lots, okay? We will vote instead. And if you're not a member yet of Cedar Home, but you regularly attend here and consider this your home church, Please become a member if your conscience allows you to do that so that you can help us choose the leaders here. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, and you are a member here, we want your vote. I'm not asking for your vote. I'm saying we want you to vote. <laughs> you guys already voted for me. <laughs> Drop by the information table in the lobby after the service and grab one of the covenant membership packets if you want information about being a member here. I would love to add more members if it's God's will this year. I'm so thankful that Jesus is the head of his church. He is the head of this local church family at Cedar Home. And we need to trust Jesus. And we need to trust his Holy Spirit to work through us. We need to pray together that God's Spirit would give our church and our leaders wisdom... We need to pray that we would be abounding in love, as Paul prays, that we would be abounding in grace, that we would balance grace with truth, and that as individuals, we need to pray that God would help us cast our burdens on him as we read and cling to his promises in Scripture. If you're not in a book right now, just read through the Psalms. That's a great place to start. We need to submit our our cares to God and trust him with our lives because he really does love us. He's proven it. He will not leave us or forsake us ever. Amen. So as the communion service come forward now, let me pray for us, okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for helping us and for saving us and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for going, leaving heaven, coming to earth, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life which you credit to your church, dying for our sins on the cross to purify us from our sin and to take all our guilt away rising from the dead and uniting us with you, hiding yourself in us right now by your spirit as we are hidden in you, Jesus. Thank you for that. You love this church. You love your church, Jesus, and we thank you for that. Help us to be obedient to you. Help us to pray. Help us to abide in you. Help us to trust you. Help us to put this church in your hands. It doesn't matter if we build a big church and you're not in it. It's all in vain if you're not here. So please, Lord, help us. And God, we thank you that you want to do that, that you promise you're with us. You'll never forsake us. And it's our joy to take the Lord's Supper now. In Jesus' name, amen.